Get more confidence, dates, and sex. Build the relationships and lifestyles you really want. DatingSkillsReview.com presents a training program for dating with, with different world-class experts in every single episode. Teaching you the secrets to their skills and success. Dating Skills Podcast, the podcast for men. Angel Donovan here, back with another episode of Dating Skills Podcast. We're at episode 47. If you've been listening to us for a while, you'll know that something that we're really big on here at Dating Skills Review is getting as close to reality as possible. We don't want to be pulling any punches here. We just want to get to the truth, what works, no matter how ugly that truth may be. Now, today's guest says this about his work. It is what I call radical realism. I want the idea of really deeply understanding what life is about, how people operate in this world, and not only being realistic and understanding it, but accepting it in a very deep way that this is what the world is like and actually loving it and embracing it and working with reality. So I love what he said there is like working with reality because to get success with this dating, sex and relationships or any other aspect of your life, you have to work with reality. You can't ignore it. And the first step is looking at reality and understanding how it really is. This is really nice. You know, I really, I really like the way he says that. I love it. So we're going to be looking at applying radical realism to the art of seduction and learning or mastering of a subject. As you know, we're also huge on learning effectively to save time and frustration here. So for me, today's guest is really hitting a sweet spot for us. He also happens to be pretty, pretty big. He's got five international bestsellers, including The Art of Seduction, Mastery, 48 Laws of Power, The 50th Law, and 33 Strategies of War. Since all of these, he's also become a high-level advisor to companies, celebrities, and the rich on these subjects. His name is Robert Greene. His books have been pretty controversial because of their radical realism, but at the same time, they are hugely influential in business, love, politics, and they are extremely well-researched. So it's really a great moment for me to have him on the podcast. As usual, you can get the show notes, including the transcript of the interview and links to anything we mentioned on the show at datingskillsreview.com slash DSP47. That's slash DSP47. Now let's get to this interview. Robert, it's great to have you on the show today. Thank you very much for calling in. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Angel. No problem. Um, before we get started and we get into the art of seduction and mastery and 48 Laws of Power, I'd, I'd really like to introduce you a bit better to uh, audience and get to know you a little bit better. i just give a bit of background. So where are you living today? Where do you hang out and what are you up to at the moment? Well, I live in Los Angeles. This is where I was born and raised. Yeah. I lived all over the world, but I came back here about 20 some years ago. Mm-hmm. So that's where I am. I you know travel all over the world. Right now, I'm I'm in between projects. I'm about to begin work on my sixth book, wow. uh, which we can discuss later. But that's that's pretty much where I'm at right now. Great, great. Yeah, because I saw uh, one of your uh, interviews with uh, Real London, I think it was, and you mentioned the book, but you weren't allowed to talk about the subject, or you weren't didn't want to. Are you, are you kind of at the point where you want to talk about it yet? I think I, at that point, I actually didn't know what it was, so I was mm. being kind of coy. Right. But now I 
pretty much know. So yeah, I'm I'm free to discuss it, but it's not that I'm trying to hide what it's about. It's just it's it's very preliminary, and I'm just shaping it. But at any yeah. point, if you want to, talk, we can talk about it. Yeah, great, great. Yeah, let's talk about that uh, a bit at the end. Other than that, so I guess you're spending a lot of your time writing writing today. Still, you know, that's the main focus of your time. Yes, I mean, I've had, you know, I do a fair amount of speaking engagements mm-hmm. and consulting work. And sometimes people are trying to put one of my books into television. And so I have other things that I do. But I've decided as I've gotten older that I want to, like, concentrate my forces, obeying one of my own laws of power. And mm-hmm. what I enjoy the most is actually writing. Mm-hmm. It's probably what I'd be best at. So that's that's what I'm giving maybe 90% of my time to. Wow, great. I'd like to talk a bit about where most of your insights and ideas have come for your books, because I guess that's kind of a large part of what you do. You know, I guess the, the writing kind of comes after all of this ideas formulation, the insights and stuff you, you have. So mm-hmm. does this come from observations from your life? Does it come from research and mix? Or does it come from other areas? Where would you say uh, most of your ideas and insights are coming from? It's it's like a, a confluence of several things. It's not just one or the other. Mm. So for The 48 Laws of Power, which was my first book, I had had a lot of different jobs. I traveled all over the world, and I'd been in many different power situations in Hollywood, in New York, in journalism, and then in just lots of other kind of more banal jobs. And so I had a lot of experience to draw upon and think about, but then I read a lot of history, so I'm constantly thinking of things that have happened in the past and how they're relevant mm. to what's going on now. I'm an observer. I'm I'm I have the that's a kind of a writer quality. I like to stand back and really dissect and analyze what people are up to. Ever since I was a kid, I never really trusted the appearances that people gave out. They say they, they're nice, they're good, mm. and watch what they do, and that's not, there's sort of a, a disconnect between what they say their intentions are and what they actually, and their behavior. I've always been skeptical of that and looking at people and dissecting and analyzing them. So, you know, with all of those things, the history, the reading, the observing, and the experiences, they just kind of all funnel together into, into a book. Right, right. And one last thing is now in the last um, some 17 years or so, I've been a consultant to people who are quite powerful, some of them. So personally, on that level, I've seen a lot of my ideas confirmed, and that's mm. kind of also the thing with 50 Cent and stuff. That sort of has enriched my knowledge and what I bring to the books too. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Would that, would that just out of interest, would would you have changed anything of, of some of the books based on, like, I guess your first ones, 48 Laws of Power and Art of Seduction? Are there things that you might change now based on the 10 years or more experience you've had after that? No. No, no I'm, a, I'm a believer in not, in not looking back, mm. not regretting, not thinking. It's against my main philosophy of life to even think to even entertain such a thought okay i gave i gave that book everything i had i poured a lot of blood and energy into right, it right. i made it as complete as possible you know maybe here or there on the edges there might be something i would alter or whatever mm. but i believe in like the 48 laws of power i i i hit at a basic truth about people mm-hmm. and that basic truth i believe will stand the test of time and 
I, I really wouldn't change anything. Great, great. And so, so as you were alluding to earlier, I've, I've read uh, in several interviews that you're really trying to get at the reality of the situation. You've mentioned truth and, you know, if kind of yeah. this reality, no matter what it looks like and if we don't like what it looks like, um, you're just trying to reveal that to the world. Is that what you kind of see your, your mission as with, with all of these books or? Yes. You know, so in, in the 48 Laws, I had the idea that, that um, people really have like a deep, deep-seated need for power. Mm. Uh, and we have a wrong concept of power. We think of it as as people in Washington or in business who are planning and conniving and doing all these things to get ahead, kind of an ugly view of power. Mm. But in fact, every single human being, even the little infant of three months old, is struggling for power. We don't like the feeling of not being in control. We hate the feeling that we're dependent or we can't somehow influence something. So people are constantly, constantly, constantly finding a way, trying to find some degree of power or influence. And if they're not conscious or aware of it, which is 95% of the time, they're unconsciously vying for power. Hmm. And I really felt that. I've seen it in my whole life in my family, in my personal relationships, in certainly in my jobs. And nobody likes to talk about it. They want to present the human being as if we're like your name, like we're born angels mm. and that we're not descended from chimps and that we all have this, this better nature that governs us. And I personally was sick of it because that's not been my experience in the work world. It's not been the experience of most of the people I talk to. You know, it's, 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 it's a dishonesty that really annoys me. Mm. I wanted to sort of aim my cannons and blast this, this kind of falsehood uh, as best I can and show you that there's nothing to be ashamed about. It's not like the fact that we want this degree of power or control. There's something wrong with it. I don't have a moral judgment. Mm. But let's be realistic this is who we are. So in all of my books, uh, seduction is similar. We want to sort of reserve the element of sex and love as if it's this romantic little corner of the world where, where all of our nicest instincts come out. And yet again, I believe that seduction involves kind of a dark side of our personality. And I didn't want to avoid that. I wanted to actually embrace it. Mm -hmm. All of my books... I'm kind of overcoming some taboos that people have and showing you what I think is really going on. Right. So those two ones you mentioned, power and seduction, are a lot more controversial, if we want to use that word, from that perspective. Um, and they get people more riled up, I guess. And it would be great to hear just like a couple of examples of where people have resisted this. But you see, when, when I was looking at those two books, I was, I was thinking, well, first that, you know, I guess seduction could have come flowed quite naturally from power and also they're both as you said it, it's about control right are they both really books about control and seduction is just applied to one context but it's pretty much the same thing well control is a loaded word and it's mm. just a word and so what are we really talking about you don't really control things uh, uh to a large extent so much of what happens in life where we are somewhat powerless we don't control where we're born who our parents are what some of our own limitations might be, whom the people that we meet, accidents that happen in the world. There's a lot that we don't control, and in the seduction, the same is true. What I'm trying to say is that we don't like that feeling, and so we're struggling in some way to to gain a little bit of control, either passively or actively. 
And I want to make it so that you're more aware of this, so that maybe you can consciously gain a little bit more control over your life, increase that slight margin of control that you possibly could have. It doesn't really mean controlling other people. That's where it gets kind of loaded and sounds sort mm -hmm. of evil. If you are overt in trying to control the, the worst people in the world, power or seduction-wise, are those who really try to overtly control everything around them and the people around them because it just stirs up a lot of resentment. People hate you. You look ugly. Mm. Uh, you know. So the game, as I've showed you, is to be indirect, to be subtle, to make it so that people want to do your bidding. That's the seduction game. Mm. If if people are pleased, are, are, are under your spell, and they end up doing what you want to do, that's sort of the highest form of kind of indirect control that you have. But really, the, the most powerful form of control is over yourself. And that's a theme that I batter into your head in all of the books, including the book I, war, I wrote on warfare and strategy. Mm. It's the degree of, of controlling your own emotions to some extent and controlling your own weaknesses, etc. That's really where true power lies. Right. And in uh, Mastery, you emphasize a lot social awareness and social intelligence, which kind of flows on from that, right? So you're kind of building the same. You, you saw that as important to, as important to learning the self-discipline, the self-awareness as it was to uh, executing on the, you know, the, the, the laws of power and the rules you define in seduction. Yes, I mean, uh, Mastery is a, a, a little bit different from the other books. It's not so much oriented towards the social game. It's more about you and how you master your craft and develop skills. But then I wanted to add into this component that we're, we're social animals. We're social creatures. You can't divorce power and mastery from the ability to work with other people. And then it's actually, we'll get to it later, is the subject of my next book. Mm. But that ability to stand back from situations and observe people and not get caught up in your emotions mm. and look at them with a degree of objectivity and not get angry or upset or judgmental, but say, ah, this person has this problem, this issue, this insecurity. It's like an animal that has a tail that's shaped a certain way. That's just who they are. I'm going to observe that and I'm going to see how I can best either use their weakness or, or, or protect myself. And that kind of uh, detachment is very liberating because you don't go through life taking everything personally, mm -hmm. which is just so much a, a problem that we have. We're such emotional creatures. And it's not that you become cold or ruthless or ugly in that sense. It's actually kind of a tolerant feeling where you accept people as they are. But that ability to stand back and observe people and gain knowledge about what motivates them and then act upon that is a form of mastery. It's not only, you're not only mastering your craft, whatever it is, you also have to master the social realm. So that's why I put that very important chapter in that book. Right, right. And you, I mean, you, you talked about openness to ideas in a way there, because that, that's one of the topics I felt that was very important. It kind of connects with in a way, you're, you're pushing this harsh reality in your books of power and seduction out there to the world. And I assume you've seen some resistance. And it'd be interesting, like, have you seen less or more for the power or seduction? Was there one theme that you saw a little bit more resistance, you know, when it got published and so on, in the press, perhaps, or otherwise? 
I would say probably, weirdly enough, I got there was more resistance to seduction than uh, to power. Actually, were, that doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah, I mean, there were people who were upset about the amorality, and but I, I was actually surprised that I didn't get more anger about that. But mm. when it came to seduction, a lot of people were very upset. I'd say more women than men, mm. but there were men who were upset. That the idea is, this is just, shouldn't love and romance be about being natural and being who you are? And why do we have to read a book on it? And why do we have to try so hard? And why do you use the word victim? I mean, victim is such an (laughs) ugly word. I say, you know, I'm talking about the person that you're seducing as your victim. We have a chapter called Choose the Right Victim. Why do you use that word? It's such an ugly word. And on and on and on and on. And my feeling is when you get that kind of level of a reaction, you sort of hit a nerve. Mm. Unconsciously, you sort of hit a sore spot in people. They want to believe very deeply that love and romance is this is this glorified realm. But deep down inside, they know it isn't. And we all know that in relationships, there's all sorts of power games being played. Mm. You also know that when you're trying to seduce or romance somebody that you can't just simply be who you are, that mm. you're always trying, you're always molding your character, you're saying things depending on who they are, you're trying to impress them. Unconsciously, we're constantly doing things that belie this notion that that romance and seduction is just this separate realm. So I just wanted to, you know, slap you a little bit with the reality I think is actually out there. And in fact, Seduction operates more when you use the kind of transgressive, dark side of it. That's what really seduces us. Um, so I think I got a little bit more resistance from that book, which was it surprised me a little bit. Yeah. I think something we found also, like talking about openness to ideas, is that some of the ideas in, in the realms of like, you know, dating, sex, and kind of relationships, when you're trying to look at the pure reality of it, a lot of people resist that they're not open to those ideas and and it interrupts the learning process. It becomes a barrier for a lot of people. So that's actually something I want to talk about in a little bit with connection to your, you know, the learning process and mastery that you discuss because you talk about openness to ideas. But to finish off with seduction, how does your approach, we we talk sometimes about pickup artistry and we have some of those guys on on the show sometimes and also known as a seduction community. (laughs) So kind of relevant. Yes. How does your approach to the topic of seduction differ to the approach taken by that community? Well, I'm aware of the community. I've had contact with them since. I'm good friends with Neil Strauss, who's Mm. one of the main figures in the community. But I do think my approach is different. I'm geared towards, I think, something a little bit longer lasting. The game that I'm trying to immerse you in and educate you in is something psychological, where you're Think of the of the brain of the other person as this kind of defensive, this organ that has all these walls around it that has all these defenses. Mm. People have resistance to change, to influence, to other people's ideas. It's a natural state that we all have. And the game in seduction is to lower those resistances and those walls. And the, and the more you lower them, the more power and influence and the more you can get somebody under your spell and they can fall in love. So the pickup game is a little bit more kind of momentary. It's more like there's this hot woman in a bar and and how do I, you know, get her in bed? I mean, there's a more, it's more subtle than that, but mm. it's a more momentary kind of game. 
So there's not a deep, lasting psychological impact that you're trying to have. My book, it could be used and help to help you do those more instantaneous pickups, but it's really about getting them to fall in love with you, getting them to fall into your spell, getting them to think about you when you're not there. And it can be applied to sex and it can be applied to your work in your job. It can be applied to politics, marketing. Every, you're trying to lower people's resistance. And so my book is predicated on the longer you take to play that game and the more careful you are, the more power you have. So it could take six months, a year. But if you do that, or, or one month, let's say, the longer you take, the more power that you're going to have. So I'd say that that element of time and deep psychology is the main difference. Right, right. So it, it, when you bring in the factor of time, it sounds a lot more strategic um, in, in its approach. Well, I mean, the pickup game is very strategic, but it's more, it's really more, almost more tactical. You're, you're, what is your end game? We don't know. I guess your end game is to have sex. Here, my end game, my grand strategy is to get that person to be under my spell so that they'll that we have this relationship where they're not resistant to me in, right. in some way. It's also, and, it's almost more relevant to relationships because it, it, it is fair to say that a lot of the, the pickup advice and, and what they focus on is meeting, you know, just attracting and, and getting a girl into bed and they don't talk a lot about the relationship, although there is some, some advice out there. But it sounds like, you know, it's a much more longer term. I noticed some aspects of your book, which talks about the short-term aspect of it, but it sounds, you know, when you're talking about getting the, the mind seduced, it's, it's a more long-term influence. Yes, and the approach that I'm trying to say is the more you play this psychological game, and mm -hmm. it goes both ways. If you're like the cold seducer, I maintain you actually are going to have limits to your success and you're not going to enjoy it. The, the seduction mm -hmm. has to be pleasurable or it's not really seduction. Right. And so you're also equally opening yourself up to the influence of the other person and letting them have power over you. And I'm trying to say that the more you play that game and allow this kind of mutual lowering of resistances, mm. the more pleasure you're going to have in the sex, in the relationship, in everything that happens in your whole life as well. You're freeing yourself up emotionally. A lot of people, I'm, I think, are a little bit kind of cold that way and they're afraid yep. of being vulnerable and they're afraid of letting down those walls. And this is about letting down the walls and if in the end you're going to have a more interesting relationship, yeah, that's probably... It's probably true, but also sometimes a very powerful seduction doesn't lead to a great relationship because there's there's too much deep emotions going on there. So that's a whole other discussion. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. One of, one of the comments I saw you, like coming back to this kind of strategic emphasis, I saw this comment uh, you did in a Reddit AMA. Uh, it says, um, you, and that's this question about how you should approach a girl. You said you should treat each woman as a separate country and culture. Stop applying the same mm -hmm. techniques actually means stop applying the same techniques to different women and shut off your interior monologue and penetrate their way of thinking. Is that something that you, you still advise on? You really think that uh, you should teach each person as an individual when you approach them? Well, not only would I say that, mm -hmm. I'd say that if I lived a thousand years, I would say that. And I yep. would say that that's like should be engraved in your brain and, and should mm -hmm. be a philosophy of life in general. Because first of all, A, it's true. Everybody is an individual is different. You don't want to be going through life on this cookie cutter approach and projecting onto them your own emotions and seeing your the reflection of your mother 
or your first girlfriend and every woman that you meet, all these terrible things that men do. Mm. So to the degree that you can actually shut yourself stop hearing that voice in your head and look at that woman there and see what makes her different and try and put yourself in her her shoes and imagine what her experience is and get information that allows you to make to to figure out what sets her apart from everyone else not only will you be a better person you'll be happier but you'll be an incredibly powerful powerful seducer there's nothing more seductive than the sense that someone is giving you individualized attention you can think of it right now in terms of your own life if you're at a party or something you're talking to someone and they show by what they're saying that they understand you and what makes you tick and what's what makes you different a single comment like that will just melt you if you're able to have that power and that ability, and it, you're not going to have it 100%, mm. even going to have it 50%. It's hard in this world where we're so inundated with media and we're in our heads so much. If you can have it 25%, I don't care. I don't know what the number is. You'll be lifted up into the stratosphere of seduction. You'll be one of the all-time greats. So, yeah, I would, I would never uh, disagree with that, the phrasing of what I said. Great. So listening is a key skill here and observing. It's not just listening. I, mm. I, I mean, a quibble here. It's not just listening because some people make a mistake of thinking, well, mm. just going to listen. You can listen and hear people, but what you're really doing is placing yourself inside of them and trying to figure out what their experience mm. is and getting inside of their head. And so you could listen, but it doesn't really like you never get to that level because you're just hearing the words that they're saying. Mm. But you're trying to go deeper than that. You're trying to figure out why did they say that? What's going mm -hmm. on in their head? Why are they dressed this way? Have you, have you got any like kind of practical tips on that? Because I, I assume it's something you probably had to do a lot. I don't think it's kind of covered in your books at all. But, you know, in the whole processes you, you've kind of been through uh, for writing your books, maybe this is something you've had to do quite a bit, you know, I, putting yourself in the shoes of Napoleon Bonaparte and, or, or yeah. wherever. Um, have you got any tips on, on how people could do that better? Well, it's, a little, it's quite a bit the subject of my next book. Oh, great. Um, it's also covered in Chapter 4 of Mastery and in Social Intelligence mm -hmm. when I'm talking about those mirror neurons and empathy. Right. And so, yeah, the, the, you're right to say that there's not – I don't have like an ultimate – practical primer on the subject, which is sort of the subject uh, of the next book. But it's a skill. Mm. It's a skill that we're all born with the, the materials for, the natural ability to do it, which is what I talk about in Mastery, the mirror neurons, our ability to think inside other people, to imagine what they're thinking is a very powerful human trait that we're all born with, but we lose it. So it, let's just say first it's a skill. It's not going to come to you overnight. It's not like one formula that I can give you that tomorrow you'll wake up and you'll have it. You have to build this, this skill, and you can practice it. You can practice it in small, beautiful ways because every day of your life you're in a conversation with people, and they have different degrees. You're going to be conversing with strangers um, at work, people who are half strangers, who are colleagues, and then there'll be people that you know very well. Mm. And all of those are very different relationships where there's different degrees of information. And so if you have somebody, for instance, that you're in a, a, a long-term relationship with, 
how can I today in hearing them and watching them glean something, a new thing about them that I never thought about before? I'm going to try and do that every day. I'm going to listen to what they say. I'm going to observe them very deeply. And I'm going to think, hmm, I never thought of them in this way. This is something new. This is some new bit of truth that they've revealed inadvertently in what they said. Hmm. And, you know, I make it clear in, the, in all of my books that you're not just looking at what people say, you're looking at their body language, and you're reading between the lines. People don't overtly admit, hey, I'm lonely or I'm insecure. They signal it through what's, what's in between the lines or right. the voice or whatever. So these are like exercises that you will do with the people that you know well. You're going to say, I'm going to figure out some, I'm going to hear them. And every day I'm going to try and see, have a new thought about them, see them mm -hmm. in a new light. And then the other exercises with people that you don't know as far as trying to spend five minutes without hearing your own voice, where you're focused in a meditative way, deeply entranced on what somebody has said, and you're really 100% listening. I mean, I can go on. I, you know, there are more exercises. And as I said in my new book, I'll make it clear. But these are just to give you, you know, just a, a foretaste of what I'll be talking about. Great. Yeah, that, that sounds like great stuff. That's, that sounds kind of similar to uh, some, of, some of the stuff I, I did in the, in the past. And I, I, would, I would say like 10 years ago, I didn't really see a lot of the social signals around me. I, I got into the, the pickup artist movement way back, you know, 15 years ago, whenever it was. Wow. That kind of brought that focus on social interactions. So uh -huh. I basically spent most days thinking about this kind of stuff. You know, even yeah. I, was at, I was a student at the time and uh, I was at business school and I was spending more time thinking about why the professor said stuff the way he did and, you uh -huh. know, that kind of stuff. And and uh, other stuff, looking at people and the way they acted. Actually, I think I learned more at business school about social interactions and all uh -huh. of that kind of stuff than, than business. So I kind of used that time to uh, study um, that. So it really helped me. Um, and yeah. just by, it's kind of this process you said, but just, it sounds like all you're saying is like, you have to be willing to, you know, take notice and take the time to observe this and, and, and have yeah. that thing in the back of the mind, I'm going to try and figure something out today. It has to be pleasurable. We, we humans don't do things in which we, unless we see a reward or right. which we feel like there's some, some good in it or it's fun. It, it makes life so much better. Mm -hmm. It makes you less self-absorbed. You, you have less time to think about your own worries and problems. Right. You're more outer-oriented. Mm -hmm. You have a greater sense of proportion of values and things like so. Well, my problems really aren't that big at all because here other people have these these problems, etc. It gets you out of your own little narrow world. So mm -hmm. it's very therapeutic. And if you keep that in mind, mm -hmm. that every day doing this is like a five, ten minute bit of therapy, um, you're more likely to do it as opposed to shit. Another right. thing I have to do in <laughs> my life, you know, man, yeah. I... I just want to play a video game. Fuck. Right. You know, no, you've got to think of it like it's actually going to really improve all aspects. You'll be a better business person as well. Because as you say, business is pure, is, is pure social, inter uh, the, the social relationships. Yeah, so totally. Uh, actually, like, you know, the, the MBA and the executive MBA, the difference they say is like the executive MBA is nearly all, you know, personal organizational yeah. development, the soft side of it. Um, yeah. So they totally focus on that, and that's for the more mature guys who are, you know, doing stuff already, and that's the focus. Right. Yeah. So uh, I actually found it fascinating. That was what drove me as well. It was just like you know discovering the world and and how it works. Uh huh. So you know, I guess that's 
where people could look for inspiration. It's like really discovering about how life works. Yeah. Everything's going on around you. Moving on a little bit, the, um, you bring out some characters in Seduction. When I think one of the f- most famous ones is a rake, um, but yeah. there's, there's quite a few of them in there. And I was just wondering if you have any kind of real life examples that exist today. Most of the ones, uh, if I remember correctly, because it was a while already ago, are historic examples. I can't remember if there were any more, you know, modern ones, say in the last 50 years or so, um, that you could reference that might give people something to relate to. Well, I mean, I think if you can't personally relate to the idea of a rake, you know, you haven't been haven't been out there much in the world. I mean, a lot of Hollywood actors, I can't think of any that instantly mm. come to mind. I mean, Bill Clinton. I've seen it, I've seen a couple rake. of videos of uh, Ben Affleck. Would he qualify? I wouldn't know, but I, I'm sure he probably would be. Yeah, and there was and there's Russell Russell Brand is kind of. Oh, Russell Brand. Well, I don't know what yeah. you think of him as a rake type character. Some people refer to him as a rake. Sure, sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's one, there's a simple way to you know qualify a rake, a simple way of measuring it, and that's the degree to how much they're obsessed with women. Uh, if mm-hmm. someone is just interested in sex and 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 going to bed with three hundred women, mm-hmm. but it's kind of cold, and they're doing it out of something else that's not necessarily a rake it's more the fact that there these are, this is a man who really really is obsessed with women their psychology with who they are he really it likes them deep down inside he likes their company he's not necessarily a man's man in fact most rakes have a slight slight feminine edge to mm-hmm. them Mm-hmm. They actually enjoy the company of women, but they can't be satisfied by one woman. And so their game and their search is to find as many di- different ones as possible. But the fact that they are deeply interested in women is what makes them so devilishly seductive. And a lot of obviously, you know, rock stars are going to have that quality and Hollywood actors and Bill Clinton. I, I know there. Are, I keep hearing people tell me of of, of amazing rakes uh, now in the world today, and I for some reason I'm drawing blanks. I'm mm. hoping you would hoping you would help me out. <laughs> well, I, I I saw one of your I, quotes. I, I, I would I would say you know like mm. on the side of someone who you might think is rake but isn't would be like Tiger Woods because this is a guy who's clearly sleeping with a lot of different women or has that need. But there's something else going on there. I wouldn't say he's someone who's genuinely always thinking about women. Mm. It's got this sort of competitive thing where he's got a you know so that that would be someone where i wouldn't say is that but god damn it i can't think of like the the, you know the rakes that are out there in the world they're always there are always hundreds of thousands of of male rakes out there at any given time in in history including myself although i i have to qualify myself as a reformed rake right well i mean i've read some stuff about mick jagger for instance uh some stuff that eric clapton said about him he sounded like he fit into that character well, most definitely, and he's got that slight, you know, androgynous aspect to him. I know women who who know Mick Jagger to this day, and 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 tell me about that. So he he a hundred percent would have to be classified as a rake. You know, you'll you'll find them a lot in people who are uh, in the public eye, like in the rock world, you know, in music, et cetera. But they're also everywhere. You know, they're yeah. not just celebrities. I think I think one. I mean, obviously, we always look for celebrities, what helps with this kind of thing, because obviously we all know them. But one thing is, like, these are obviously people who are successful. Maybe, maybe they've gone through some of that mastery process, which is being open. And, and this is a long way of saying that, you know, 
becoming a rake type character or one of these other seductive characters naturally uh, means that you kind of let go of some of your inhibitions, like the societal inhibitions and some things like this. So that might be a reason why there's more, more of these in that group of people than in the general population, for example. I don't know if you have any ideas on that. There'd be more of what, I'm sorry? More seductor types, more you know, more effective seductors, because you look at them and you're like, okay, it's just because he's a rock star that yeah. you know he's got loads of women chasing him, of course. But you also see these, act these people acting differently as well. And you know, maybe in their first year of success, you know, they'd look a little bit different in the, in the interviews and so on to the second year and the third year. It, it could also be for a kind of an emotional freeing up and an inhibition freeing up because, you know, they have, they're more confident as, as time goes on and so on, so they can act like themselves. And uh, it's just, just some ideas there as to why there might be more of them that are as effective at seduction. And it's not just the, the fact that they're a rock star or they're a celebrity or so on. Yeah, I mean, perhaps the fact that they are have this quality is what ends up making them successful and, and, and powerful. Mm. They have these seductive qualities. I do now recall somebody that I would say is a very great modern seducer, and it's and I can say it because I've personally observed him in action. Mm. And that's, that's Fifty Cent. He's got all of the the uh, background material. He, he you know he lost his mother in early age, and he's sort of obsessed with that mother figure a bit, and he's obsessed with women, and he's really really good around them, mm. and and he gives them this kind of attention. Uh, that's very personalized, and he's just—he's got lots of charisma. But this is—this was obviously predating his success as a rock star. He had this—this this power going on, going way back. Mm. But I'm, I guess I'm not quite sure what your question is about why there there are more seducers out there. I'm not sure I understand that. Well, I was just wondering if there's more of them because. Yeah, you know, beyond the fact that in People magazine or whatever, you know, there's always going to be like uh, he cheated on he, her, et cetera, et cetera. And it just seems like it goes on, it goes, it goes oh. on more often there. And you know, the the, oh. the male well, stars are sleeping with more women than the average I guy. And I don't know if that's not just an illusion. I remember mm -hmm. I was in Paris when I was about 20 years old, and yep. I worked in a hotel. Mm -hmm. All the models stayed. And I met this man who was sort of the first great seducer I've ever met. And he kind of got me excited about the whole concept. And he was this Brazilian guy. And he'll, nobody will have ever heard of him. That's why I say there's, they're, they're around you, but you're, they're not necessarily in the news. Mm. Uh, he, this guy was so insanely smooth. I've never seen anybody smoother than him, even, even, even beyond 50 Cent. And... He he could repair any situation and he could charm any woman, and no one's ever heard of him. And I encounter people like that all the time, stories about that. And in every office, there will be someone like that. Certainly, if you're going to be in the limelight, and you're going to be a successful actor, whomever, you have a heads up so that a woman is already intrigued without having to know you know anything about you personally so that gives you an advantage and it, but it creates this illusion that that's where you know all of the great seducers are and it's not they're they're around us everywhere believe me trust me so one of the, one of the kind of easier topics I, f I thought that would be really helpful today uh, for the audience in terms yeah. of practicality is that you talk about some of the anti uh, seductive qualities yeah. in you in your book um, and it's yeah. and it's always easier I think to stop doing things than it is to try doing new things so could we talk a little bit what are what are the anti-seductive qualities that you want to avoid well i don't have the book in front of me and i wrote uh -huh. it uh, I wrote, <laughs> sorry about that. 13 years ago but i mean clearly talking too much being kind of a i call it the brute 
where you think that just sort of overwhelming the woman physically is what is seductive, but it's incredibly anti-seductive mm. because it shows that you're not seeing them as a different person. You're just brutishly applying uh, tactics that you've used on other women. The windbag, the, the man who just talks and talks, I already mentioned that. The moralizer, somebody who's always judging and criticizing mm. people. Seduction is sort of a realm where we let go of all of those needs to moralize and judge other people. It's pretty much going to be all tied to a single quality, which is the inability to get outside of yourself and listen to the other person and get outside of your own insecurities. I, I think one of the types that I mentioned is the bumbler. And, and what that is, is it's someone who won't quite consummate the seduction or is really bad at consummating it because he's always thinking of himself and his insecurities, but he masks it by thinking, oh, she's not ready for it, or I'm going to be more considerate and I'm not going to push right. myself at that right moment. But actually it reveals that you're thinking about yourself and your own insecurities. You're not really being considerate. And a lot of times a woman really wants to be overwhelmed at that particular moment that's deeply tied to maybe her own psychological needs where at a certain moment all the pretenses are dropped mm -hmm. and then and moves to the aggressive side. And a lot of anti, an anti-seductive quality is the man unwilling to make that aggressive move because he's worried about hurting her feelings, but it just reveals that he's in his head. So all of these qualities hmm. reveal that you're thinking about yourself and not thinking about the other person, and that's sort of what ties all the anti-seductive characters together. That's great. I, I like the the bumbler, the way, you, I mean, that's a very common problem, but I like, you know, the, the different uh, perspective you, you bring to that, that yeah. he's, he's inside his head, and, and that's, that's the problem where it's coming from. Okay, so in terms of uh, healthy long-term relationships, is there anything you found for your research that you know can support and improve the health of long-term relationships with some of the seductive well, material? Well, I mean, this isn't a book about long-term relationships. It's mm -hmm. not called it's not called marriage or whatever. It's called seduction. So yep. there's there's sort of a, a built-in shelf life sometimes for these things. Where but there are relationships. I, I think a major complaint that. Uh -oh, a woman might have, and even a man, is mm. that after all the excitement that is generated through the seductive process where there's surprises and drama and ups and downs and this sort of intensity, that it kind of just flattens out almost instantly that it becomes a relationship and then it loses its flavor and then you find your mind wandering to somebody else. So I try and say in the book that you want to keep the seduction going. It's not like it's as intense as it was in the beginning. You can't sustain a relationship for a few years at that level. It's going to have to taper off, let's be realistic. But it doesn't have to completely fall off the map where you no longer are trying. You're no longer dressing nicely. You're no longer taking them to interesting places. You're no longer buying them things that are that show you know, you're, you're, you're thinking about them in some way. The moment you let go of all of that, you're in trouble. And it's a common complaint that women have in relationships. But I think men find it very oppressive to have everything settle into that. So you're, you are thinking about the seduction. You are thinking about occasionally generating drama. You are going to still have to go a little bit hot and cold at times and withdraw a little bit and keep an edge and keep some, some element of surprise going. Mm. 
even even a, a degree of tension is always good. It's it's mostly that you're not just sort of letting everything go and just being natural like you were before you started the whole thing. I think is the main way to kind of keep the the seductive charge going. The other thing that really kills a relationship is familiarity. Like you just know everything about them. It loses all excitement. There's no mystery anymore. You know everything. And so you have to be able to still generate a sense of surprise. There are qualities about you that they don't know yet. You do things that surprise them. Hmm. Um, and if you're able to keep that going, then they'll probably respond and and do the same. And if it's a person that doesn't want that, that wants just the comfort and is afraid of, of continuing the, the seductive charge, that's probably a, a problem unless it's something that you're, that you want yourself as well. Yeah. That, those sound like all uh, great, great points there. I'm conscious of time. So I'd like to move on to a bit of the mastery stuff. Okay. I think some of that's great uh, and very useful. First of all, I, I don't know if you could you, you've thought about this, but is there a way that you would approach the kind of the process of learning that you used for mastery to seduction? Like if you wanted to become a master of seduction, what would be the process you would go through to get there? Well, yeah, you could. I mean, you know, I've never thought of that before. So mm. this is a first time here, but I think it's an interesting proposition that you bring up there. So for instance, chapter one in mastery is discover your calling. Mm. discovering what it is that you were meant to be or to do in life. And it's a critical question for everyone. It's going to be what will end up making you successful and happy. And you could say in, in terms of seduction, it's knowing who you are as a seducer. Basically, chapter one of mastery is about knowing who you are, mm. being self-aware, so that you end up, you don't end up becoming a lawyer, even though you were meant to be a writer. In seduction, it would be knowing who you are, what your strengths are, what makes you naturally seductive, which is the first part of the book. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I would apply that there. And then the apprenticeship would also be applicable. That's the chapter two of Mastery, where you go through a seven, ten-year apprenticeship gaining skills. And what the apprenticeship would mean in terms of seduction would be as many seductions as possible. The more experience and practice you have, the more women you interact with, the more you put yourself out there, the more you go into social situations, the more you're going to be developing a skill and a smoothness and a confidence and an ease. It's not like you're you're going to become Mr. Smooth. You know, it's it's good to have a little bit of vulnerability, to have some mm -hmm. shines, et cetera, but mm -hmm. you want to have it a little bit under control so it doesn't dominate your character. And so the more you practice it literally out there in the world instead of reading books on it and literally putting yourself into these interactions and failing. So as they say in the mastery, uh, to learn a skill, you have to fail at it enough. You have to fail at this, overcome your fear. And then, you know, the next chapter in mastery is of finding a good mentor who can mm -hmm. help you. You know, that's always a great step in, in, in the process, which, you know, there was a, a component in the pickup artist world. You know, I'm moving on to the creative, intuitive side of it. It seems a little bit far-fetched. But really, if, you, if you've been uh, doing this for a long time, uh, you're no longer thinking in each situation like, do I need to do this? Do I need to try this strategy? What should I say here? It comes naturally to you. You have a flow. You're not thinking so much, and you're just in the moment, which is what happens to people who are great piano players or athletes 
which is the end game of mastery that I discuss in the book, where you have an intuitive feel for it. That's what's going to happen. If you've been practicing the art of seduction for 10, 12 years, you're going to get reach that level. So I've never thought of it before. It's a great question, but I think it is actually quite applicable. Yeah, I think so too. One of the, the, one of the things you bring up is how important persistence is and failing to the learning process. And you just mentioned failing a bit. Uh, yeah. could, could you talk about how important those two attributes are? I, I see them as like pretty essential. And I think it's something that guys kind of run away from and they want to avoid. So I, I feel it's important. Well, you know, I'm trying to debunk in, uh, in mastery some common concepts that we have about people who are great at something, who are geniuses, mm-hmm. as if they were born that way, as if a Steve Jobs has this natural talent Tiger Woods or whomever, they were just born that way and mm. and they just they have the raw materials that we don't have and that's what ends up and they use it and they become great. No. In all of the stories that I people I've read about, and then I interviewed nine contemporary masters as well, talent is plays a very, very small or minor role. It's it's their level of persistence. It's how hard they try how long they try something, how willing they are to spend five or ten years learning a skill, how they're not afraid to experiment and put themselves out there in the public eye, and if they're criticized, they can stand, they can withstand it. That level of inner strength and persistence, if you have it, there's nothing that's going to stop you. Mm-hmm. And I know um, in Mastery, one of the ma- contemporary masters I interviewed is a guy named Paul Graham very successful person in Silicon Valley who's created a company called Y Combinator mm-hmm. worth $5 billion. And Paul Graham basically has a school for people who want to do their own tech startup. It's an entrepreneur system in which he takes a cut of if their company ends up being successful. And he interviews every year thousands of people, literally 8,000 people who want to become part of Y Combinator. Mm-hmm. He can recognize almost within three seconds whether they have the raw material or not when they come in for an interview. It's, he can recognize that quality of persistence. Yeah. But they're going to keep beating against the wall and overcome it. it. He'll criticize their idea in the interview. Will they take that criticism and, and use it and, and say, hmm, yeah, maybe right, I'll do this, that, and the other? Or are they going to kind of wither and wilt Mm. Right then and there, he knows that this is one person's going to succeed and another's not. He he met Mark Zuckerberg, which you might love or hate, early, early on, and he said that's the guy that has like eighty thousand degrees of this level of persistence. And that, of course, in, involves failure. If you think about it in your own life, if you try something, a game, a sport, writing, whatever it is, when something doesn't work. You may, it makes you think about why it didn't work. And when that, that reflective moment, you start going, hmm, this, I can try now. Instead of A, I can try B, which is probably what will work now. That is how you learn. You don't learn unless something goes wrong because you keep doing what you, th- what you were going to do anyway until you hit a wall, until there's resistance, until something fails. That's what makes you stop and say, Ah, I've got to do something different. That's what exactly what learning is. So the more you put yourself out there to fail, the quicker that learning curve will happen, the faster you will learn. 
And, you know, they've been doc they've even documented that in studies. I quoted that in in in, in mastery mm-hmm. that the the figure skaters who end up getting a gold or bronze or silver medal in the Olympics are the ones who fell the most in practice. They've tried the most difficult right. I don't even remember what they call it, <laughs> whatever, spins, moves, and they fell uh over and over and over again. They're not afraid of falling. And that's literally What's going to make you a good entrepreneur, seducer, whatever? Yeah, uh, I totally agree with that. Um, obviously, it's uh, not the not not some favorite uh, point of advice for for guys listening to the first time. They kind of want, want to avoid all that. The answer is more just to get used to it. And well, it's like, it. do you are you worried about your ego or are you excited about success? What's more mm-hmm. important to you: winning, succeeding? getting better right. or your own miserable little ego. I mean, I hate to put it that way, but if you want to be realistic and you want to have some degree of success, you have to understand it doesn't mm. come overnight. It's a process, a process I describe in mastery, mm. and that process can take several years and it's going to require setbacks and failures and hardships. Mm. And so you're toughening yourself up for life. You know, a, a man should have to go through that toughening up process mm-hmm. and not shrink from challenges and from things like that. You want to think of yourself as a man who's who's independent and strong. Well, you can't get there unless you've had setbacks and hardships in life. Mm-hmm. Some of the most powerful people I've met as far as CEOs and business people or someone like 50 are precisely the ones that have had the worst childhoods and youths, etc., where they faced incredible amount of obstacles and resistance. And that's what's made them tough and strong. And you, mm-hmm. you won't go through that. You're not, you know, when, when you, if you like to exercise, your muscles don't get strong unless you have some resistance and you don't have any sweat and it's kind of painful. Well, it's the same thing with your skills in life. You've got to have some resistance before you get strong. And one one of the ways you've described that people get through this is that you know that they they get a reward from it. The way you described it is if you if a central theme in what you're doing is that you love it, then you are getting some kind of reward as you do it. And this gets you through the hardships, you know, it enables a persistence, it enables you to push through the failures because in a way you're getting this kind of immediate reward because you love it anyway. Well, I mean, you know, you can't you can't sugarcoat it. It's it's like mm-hmm. I, I have in the book the the icon of this in mastery is Henry Ford, yeah. you know, the great automobile genius. And I talk in the book about how he starts his first automobile business in the late eighteen nineties and it fails and it's hugely expensive and his reputation's in tatters. And then he tries to get a second company going, which is pretty difficult to do after you've had such a failure. Mm-hmm. And he manages to get a second company together because he's he's charming or whatever and that fails and now it looks like he's finished he's ruined he's never going to recover from that and throughout all of that this guy is like optimistic he's happy mm. not down at all people are like shocked at, at at his attitude and then he tries a third time he manages to find some strange weird man who's never been in america before who didn't know about his failures somebody from Scotland who bankrolls his third company and now it succeeds. And he says, the reason I didn't get down was I knew that each failure just taught me so many things that I could not possibly have learned on my own or from a book or from school or from anything else. It taught me why, why it didn't work, what I needed to do that was different. And by the third time, 
I had perfected it, and I knew this each time, so it didn't get me down. In fact, I welcomed it. That's hard. That's not going to be easy because in the present, you're, you're getting a big blow to your ego. People are thinking that you're a loser. You're not thinking about yourself. You're thinking about your skill and about learning. You're focusing on that. So it's a different approach. It's a different way of thinking. It's a different philosophy of life where you're outer-directed. You're outer-directed. You're thinking about your work and not about your ego and insecurities. And if you can make that switch, just that one switch, it, it, it makes a huge, you make a huge, huge difference. Yeah, it sounds like it also connects with the idea, I think it came earlier in the book, is, is trust in the process? Yes, that's right. That's a great point. I mean, um, <clears throat> I talk about that in reference to a fighter pilot, who's one of the people I interviewed. Mm. Um, and that's an, you, you think your job might be stressful. Well, you just, <laughs> you try strapping yourself into a, you know, one of those supersonic jets, which your life could be over in a, in a, in, in a millisecond. Right. That's, that's high stress. And he was not naturally gifted for being a fighter pilot. He wasn't what a golden boy. Mm. He had to learn and overcome all of his fears and weaknesses. And basically, he understood, because he had been in sports earlier on in life, there's a process involved. And that the more you do something... Mm-hmm more you learn it, the more comfortable you are, the less fearful you are. You have to kind of trust that process. And he was noticed in fighter pilot school that there would be people who would drop out who were infinitely more talented than him mm. because they got frustrated and they didn't trust the process. And that's what happens to a lot of people. They don't realize, you know, after the third year of playing the piano when they give up, that if they just push through those frustrating moments after five years some great breakthroughs will happen. So yeah, knowing that that's how the brain works, which is a huge part of what I talk about in mastery and trusting that process and knowing you'll get there Mm. is a major way of overcoming your impatience or your momentary uh, setbacks and and disappointment. It it also sounds from from that that there's a momentum involved, which eventually enables you to kind of, you know, Put that behind you many steps of success if you like you know once you get halfway there also you know you talk about a lot about the brain adapting and, and it, you know getting this massive information that it's finally starting to see the picture so yeah. I, I guess also that, that critical point is when everything stops looking like a big puzzle and and you know yeah it's confusing but actually you start to see bits of sense here and there and you know, from that point forward, it looks a lot easier. Yeah, and that happens with everything. I mean, it won't happen if you choose the wrong field. If you go in to science and you weren't meant to go in science, you won't really be able to push past that barrier because you're going to get bored and you're going to get tuned. You're going to tune out. So, hmm. the key thing is: have you chosen a field that excites you in some way? Hmm. But I call it the cycle of accelerated returns. And they have a, an expression in chemistry called autocatalytic, in which things start generating on their own of their own momentum once you reach this kind of tipping point. Um, and what I mean in the cycle of accelerated returns is once that practice reaches a point where it starts to be a little more fun, then you practice harder because you see the reward. And as you practice harder, mm-hmm. you see more rewards. It becomes fun, more fun. Right. And then it just starts generating this momentum that's so exhilarating and so powerful. But you won't get there if you give up after a couple of years. So, mm. yeah, I, I agree with you. Yeah, so something that we tell the guys here is is to focus on easy wins first because 
there's, there's a lot of issues with uh, trusting in the process of getting better in the area of dating, sex and relationships. It, it seems a lot more intangible. And I think there's a lot of, you know, there's, there's this societal confusion we were talking about a little bit earlier about how people don't talk about the reality and so on. So there's a, there's a bit more confusion there. So I, th I think a lot of people get demotivated and give up. I'm not sure if it's more than in other areas of life, but it's, it seems to me it could be. Yeah, I agree, agree with the idea of, of, of easy wins. And I talk in, in the book, I have examples of people in their apprenticeships who find a way to master one very specific small level skill. And that is what is like an, e an easy win. Right. You can find... Instead of tack taking on, you know, you're learning the piano instead of taking on, you know, a, a hugely complicated piece in the beginning, which you're certain to fail. You try something simple that you're able to conquer. It gives you an empowered feeling. It makes you know that it's going to work is, is very powerful. Yeah, definitely. I um, definitely agree with that. Okay. Uh, I want to end this, this session off with uh, something that we ask everyone. So, uh -oh. you know, I'd really, really be interested in kind of your perspective on this. It might be different okay. to many of the other people we've had before. Uh, for someone who's starting from scratch, from zero, uh, so he's a complete beginner to dating and relationships, hasn't had any success in this area of his life, what would be your top three recommendations to learn how to become a master of, of this area of his life as fast as possible? <sighs> <laughs> well, you've got to want to do it. You have to reach a point where you're frustrated and you're unhappy mm. and, and, and you want it. If, if it's something that you're doing just because, you know, you think it's cool or other people are like that, but it's not really who you are, or you don't feel comfortable, it's not going to work. You're, gonna, you're not going to have the wherewithal to stay with, some, with this long enough. So it's got to be something that you really want and really, you know, you've reached a point in your life where you want to change or you want to get better at it. <clears throat> the thing is, it's very simple, really. Uh, it's, uh, we've already discussed it. The more you put yourself out there, mm -hmm. the better you're going to get at it. Look, I've noticed it my, in my own life at all, as well, in a very banal level. Uh, as a writer, I'll go through a period of a year, literally, in which I don't see practically anybody because I've disappeared into my book and I'm writing. And then I'm suddenly thrust into the public eye when the book comes out, and it's kind of a, whoa, I haven't been around people. Mm. It kind of takes me like a couple of weeks to get my feet back and like, uh, you know, <laughs> how to be nice and social and et cetera. Mm. And I know that once I'm in the whirlwind and I'm doing it month after month, wow, I get so much better at it and it's easier. Mm. It's the same thing for you. It's like you've got to get over that barrier of not trying, of standing back, of reading books instead of going out there and doing it. The more you do it, yeah. the more you try and interact. It doesn't have to be, you know, don't set your bar that high. You don't want to say, oh, I'm going to go now and try and seduce this great looking model, et cetera. It's more like just talking, just being able to be comfortable and talking to a woman and being able to interact with her and feeling comfortable is, is half the game. So don't be sitting there thinking, I have to, it's all about sex. It's more about feeling confident and, and, and a degree of ease. And that really, really comes through a lot of exposure and putting yourself out there and interacting with women and, and, and just on the, even the level of a conversation. And then the other aspect that I mentioned earlier, uh, which I think would be the third one here, is something that you love. You've got to want this. You can't be doing it 
be, for some bad motive. Hmm. You have to put yourself out there. And that's number two. Number three is you have to be outer oriented the, to the degree that you can focus deeply on the other person. Think of them as an individual. Find that kind of an exciting process. Practice it. Getting out of your head, getting in, in their head. You're going to be a, a great seducer if you play it that way for a couple of years and, and be a patient and learn and get a, acquire the skill of having that kind of focused attention on people. Mm-hmm. It will only, not only improve your chances with women, but it will improve you in business, etc. So I guess those would be my things. Thank you. Great points. And all of them were kind of new perspectives. So that's really great to have on a show. I don't want to forget about your new book and, you know, what you have going on there. Well, in Mastery, uh, I had a chapter on social intelligence, which Mm. a lot of readers said, you know, was it got good feedback from that chapter that it helped them a lot. But they said that, you know, they were kind of wished that there was more, more information. And basically what I did in Mastery was I said, you must look at being in in social situations as a form of intelligence that you have to acquire. And it's a two-pronged process. It's learning how to read people in the moment in an intuitive way and understanding what makes human beings tick, the motivating, what motivates them, knowing human nature. And so I go into that in that chapter. Well, I'm going to expand that into a book, and it's basically about human nature. I'm going to kind of give you a primer, a code book that will allow you, if you practice this and go deep into it, to to decode the mysterious behavior of people around you. You'll understand in a much deeper way what is really going on behind the mask that they're wearing. What is how to look at them and Mm. see signs of, of, of their motivations, of their childhood, of their unmet needs etc. Also with that skill of being in the moment, it's going to be a book about how to read people on a much higher level, mastering what I call these sort of elements or laws of human nature that are that are very timeless. So that's, that's pretty much the... That's, that's a fascinating and very challenging subject. I, I give myself Mount Everest to climb otherwise. Yeah. yeah. Well, you've already climbed a lot of big mountains, so you know, why, not, why not build a bigger one? Exactly. Um, I'm really looking forward to that because that sounds like something that will really help our guys. You know, a lot of people get confused. I think I think one of the bigger challenges they have is they they could read all this advice, but they don't understand the reactions of the women around them. So in a in a sense, it you know it leaves them kind of blind, and you know they they don't know what to do with the advice because they don't know what's going on. More help to understand how the world you know the human world is interacting around them. Great. Oh, just give me a couple of years. Okay, (laughs) we'll we'll do. Um, yes, yeah, so, right. so good luck with that. I really look forward to oh, it. Oh, thank you. And uh, thank you thank very you. much for this fantastic interview. It's been a very, very interesting and lots of new perspectives on, on some oh, other pleasure. aspects there. Thank you, Robert. Thank you very much, Angel. I really enjoyed it. Thanks. Fantastic interview. I really enjoyed that. Here's another data point we didn't discuss in a show, but I thought was interesting. Uh, Robert once said, one thing that happens quite a lot is that someone will hire me ostensibly for some power strategy issue, and then halfway through, it will be clear they hired me for some seduction issue. So I thought that was kind of an interesting little thing there that, you know, these big business or uh, wealthy people are kind of embarrassed, I guess, about hiring him for uh, a seduction issue, so hiring him for some other power or strategy issue and then it turns out 
bet. In fact, what they need is some seduction advice. To get the interview transcript and links to anything we mentioned on the show today, go to datingskillsreview.com slash DSP47. That's slash DSP47. You'll also find the comments on that page. And one of the ways I like to use those is to help build your motivation. You see, when you write things down, when you tell others about them, this really helps nail down in your brain. This is something I want to do. This is something that I'm going to do. And this is the way I think. So today I'd like you to answer this simple question and help with that. So answer this. What are you going to change about the way you go about learning this stuff thanks to this episode? If you enjoy the show, if you get a lot out of it and you want to say thanks and show appreciation, then uh, really the best way you can do that is by telling your friends. You know, if you recommend this show to your friends, or you share it with them, you tell them about it. That really means a lot to us because it helps spread the word and it really shows that you value what we're doing here. Also, you can do, you can help us by giving us a rating on iTunes. If you give us a rating on iTunes, we get ranked a little bit higher and more people see us and more people learn about us and more people get the show, which is all great. I'm going to see you in the next episode. Have an awesome week and make sure to get out there, get social, get practicing, experiencing and learning and moving towards that better lifestyle. Dating Skills Podcast is brought to you by DatingSkillsReview.com, the number one men's source for dating, sex, and relationships advice. Get the cutting-edge advice now and create your ideal dating lifestyle.